Welcome to the broadcast of Better Together Democrats and Republicans Who Love America. All right. Going to catch up on a lot of news. Let's start out with catching up on Russia. Looking here. Open that. Okay, maybe I will. This is Newsweek. Russian soldiers received death threats for refusing to fight. Wives say Isabel von Bruggen Thursday. Newsweek. Russian soldiers detained in Ukraine's east eastern Luhansk region have received death threats for refusing to fight in Vladimir Putin's war, their relatives have said. Relatives of nine contract servicemen from Russian Bruturia Republic who were sent to pretrial detention center after they refused to participate in the war are appealing to Russia's defense minister, Sergei Shoigu, for their immediate release. The anti-war Free Bertia Foundation formed the ethnic Buryats earlier told Russian independent media outlet MediaZone that 17 servicemen who entered the, in short-term contracts with the Russian Defense Ministry had been locked up after they refused to fight and attempted to terminate their contracts. A wife and mother of military personnel from military unit number 32364 told the news outlet that men had received death threats and that they had had their labor rights violated. They said they the detained men, including included Ilya Kaminsky, Alder Dikloff, Vladimir Malkov, Andrei Martinov, Sergei Arsenov, Viktor Durkinik, and Nikolai Valiasev, Sergei Korolev, and Daniel Viznora. The relatives said they weren't allowed to terminate their military service contracts, and this month they were detained and placed in pretrial detention center in Lukansk in Ukraine's eastern Donbass region. The men were also reportedly threatened with being deployed to combat assault squadrons when asked to return to their base in Buryatia, a Russian republic near the Russian-Mongolia border. Such squadrons are typically created to lead an attack and are expected to sustain heavy casualties in operations. Independent Russian-language news outlet Varyanska reported earlier this month that it that a center is being formed in Luzkansk region where servicemen who refuse to fight in Ukraine are taken. According to the outlet, there are at least 234 people from different military units in the center, many being held in basements and garages. At least 1793 Russian military personnel have refused to take part in the war since it began on February 24th, with not all of the servicemen managing to make it home, Verska reported. Andrei Rinchko, head, legal head of the Free Berea Foundation, told MediaZone that some of those who have been detained had expired contracts with Russia's defense ministry. ministry. They take advantage of the illiteracy of the fighters, the lawyer said. First, they say your contract is automatically renewed. Secondly, you're told that you will be begin a new contract. And this is all according to the law. That this is how it should be. Nobody knows the law, he added. Rachinko said... One of the soldiers who's being detained partially lost his hearing after he was caught up in grenade blasts, but that he's still not allowed to return home. 
The lawyer said Russian commanders are refusing to explain why the soldiers are being held by force. Today, one of them asked why they were kept there. Rachinko said he was immediately put in a cell. I mean, you know, that's the way of the autocracies. They're not expected to be ethical or decent or treat their people right. Um, so I would suggest that, you know, the people of Russia just revolt against your government. Overthrow the autocracy. We'll be glad to help you. Um, right. Refusing to fight is one thing. Going up against the government and um, is, is a better way. And you'll have our protection from that. So there's that. Not trying to co-op on Brandy and Julie there. Oh, speaking of Brandy and Julie, I want to dovetail a little bit. Um, I love their podcast. It's called The Dumb Gay Podcast. No, Dumb Gay Political Podcast, I think it's called. It's a satirical, political, LGBTQ podcast. They call it themselves The Dumb Gay Podcast. and Or Political Podcast. And I really enjoy it. Their comedy is really funny. And I like their political <laughs> political commentaries. I mean, I was really impressed with them the last episode where they were just like considering leaving the country. And, you know, I, I, they have seemed at times far left and then they seem more centrist. I'm not really sure where they stand. They seem supportive of Joe Biden. It's a little bit flip-flop. Um, but I was impressed that they were considering leaving only in the sense that if they truly are far left um, and they're realizing that the kind of country they want to have is rarely going to be accomplished here because of the, the um, difficulty with our government system to evolve and change, uh, which is everything that all central Dems are fully aware of, including myself. We're aware of it. We're made more aware of it every day of how clunky our government is, just what powers do, do the Supreme Court have over the president. Um, we'll go over how they tried to block and officially did block his immigration um, deportation rights. You know, we're all still learning. Civics is just not enough. And we're all still learning. And for those who just really have had enough and want to live in a parliament um, democracy like Europe, Australia, Canada, others you know it's the smart thing to leave and so I like that they were contemplating leaving and migrating because really the best people that should stay in America are people that really love it here you know and I don't love everything about America don't get me wrong but I love what really matters about it which are the freedoms um, you know as much as I adore Europe and the beauty of all of it and the culture and the food and the architecture, I wouldn't want to be like told you can't leave the country until the government decides that I could because of COVID. And that's exactly what happens in those countries. You, you give up control and you give up freedom and the government takes far more control um, and takes far more freedom, but it's really what you want. You know, are you the type of person that, would want to be told, sorry, can't leave. COVID lockdown, you're not going. But we'll give you free education, health care. You won't lose your house if you get sick and all these other wonderful things, which are amazing, which we should have here and which, you know, us central gems are working to have here um, or trying to have here, trying to move the needle. But ultimately, you know, we have this huge opposition for all of that, too. Um and so, sure, 
you know, I liked the fact that at least if I was in a pandemic, I was here where I had the most degree of freedom to go where I wanted to go, to travel where I wanted to travel and such. I didn't end up doing that just to be responsible, but I'm just saying it was nice that I could if I needed to, right? So, I mean, there are trade-offs. If you decide to become an expat and you want to go live in a different country, I feel if you really hate America too much, then you should leave, you know, and you should be in a country that's more aligned with your socialist values so that you're happier, so that the people that are around you are happier, so that there's less negativity, right? That's what I say about, you know, kind of the toxic left is, um, I don't know if they care, I don't know if they see it, I don't know if they're blinded by it, but the toxicity that they bring to the country isn't helping anything. It isn't helping us central Dems actually move the needle, it's actually doing the opposite. It it fires up the far right to make it even harder. You know, they don't end up getting their agenda whatsoever, Um Critical race theory, bombed. You know, defund the police, bombed. These are all far left things. They don't get their agenda met. It, the, the negativity is stewing, and it just fires up the far right to make it harder for us in the middle to actually get things done. So I say, you know, as I've said, you know, the far left should leave. If you can go to Switzerland, if you can go to these Scandinavia, if you can go to these countries, and you can, if you care enough, if you want to make find a way enough, then you will. Um then that's better for you, your family, and life. But just understand, there will be things you give up that you can't get over there, that you can get here, that you most likely take for granted. Most Americans take all for granted of what they have here until they leave and travel and realize what's different. And then some people love the socialist life and they don't come back, and that's fine. I just think, you know, be true to yourself. And if you hate it here, don't stay here. We don't want you here if you hate it here. I don't want begrudging leftists here sticking it out. Don't stick it out. Leave. You know, why, 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 life is short. Why, you know, be a curmudgeon here? Because the needle can only move as fast as it can move. And it's not fast. And it's not fast enough for you. So I just was proud that Brandon and Julie were kind of reflecting. They're like, maybe we'll just leave. And I was like, if that's really what's the right choice for them then that's that's a great example for the far left to just go, you know what, put down the sword to vacate out. Find a different way. Because it's not helping move the needle whatsoever for the democratic agenda. It's a hindrance that most central Dems have had to endure for a while, and now it's become this like out-of-control force that isn't actually getting anything done. It's just making more and more difficulties for the centrists who do get things done not perfectly not good enough we know but um you know the ticket out there's no shame in leaving right and everybody should be happy with where they're at or at least be able to you know find a place that aligns with their values and that may mean you give up some money you may give up some comforts you may give up some some um luxuries you may give up some things but i'd say live where your values are I'd rather stick it out here and do the hard work and, you know, um, see the Republicans slowly but surely uh, come to the progressive agenda. Because they do. They all believe in climate change now, but there's a time that they did not, right? A lot do believe in abortion rights. They're just kind of drowned out by the minority, right? So I'd rather just stick it out long haul and do the hard work. I'm a bridge builder. And I am feel aligned with my values here. But if you don't, 
then just leave. There's no shame in leaving. It's not quitting. It's just you realizing it's not a fit. Go. So I thought that was, I just wanted to mention that. Okay. Top, the U.S. Air Force officials say Ukraine could get U.S. or Western fighter jets as it fends off Russia. Of course we're going to support Ukraine. uh, Swedish, French, and other European-made fan, man-made, and other European, and other European-made fighter jets are options for Ukraine, but probably not MIGs. General Charles Q. Brown said Wednesday, "Well, we're going to help them out. I don't even need to read that article. So they're going to get the support that they deserve in rising up against the Russian regime." Putin thinks U.S. attention deficit disorder will help him win the war by the CIA. I agree with the attention deficit disorder, but I don't agree he's going to win the war. Putin, okay, this is Newsweek. Jason Lemon, director of CIA, said that Russian President Putin believes U.S. has attention deficit problem will eventually lose interest in supporting Ukraine. Um, Putin launched Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine almost five months ago on February 24th, drawing widespread international condemnation. The U.S., along with NATO allies, also strongly supported Ukraine, providing billions of dollars in military and humanitarian assistance to the country amid unprovoked aggression. As the war drags on, well, it's only been not even a year. However, both sides dig in for what many analysts will become a long-protected conflict, protracted conflict. Ukrainians are reportedly concerned that support from the West could wane. I don't think you need to worry about that. CIA Director William Byrne said that Wednesday that Putin is factoring in such a scenario and his strategy. Putin's view of America, Americans is we always suffer from attention de- deficit disorder and we get distracted by something else, which is true. Byrne said during a question and answer session at the Aspen Security Conference taking place in Colorado, the CIA director asserted, and I think he's wrong now, he's pointed out that Moscow has consistently misjudged the situation regarding Ukraine. At the outside of the invasion, Putin and others in the Kremlin reportedly believed that they would quickly be able to conquer much of Ukraine and topple the government in Kiev. After the initial assault largely failed, Moscow refocused its efforts on eastern Ukraine, where it had more success, but continued to face fierce opposition from Ukrainian militaries or as ordinary citizens. Prior to becoming director of CIA, Bernstein served as the U.S. ambassador to Russia from 2005 to 2008 and the deputy director of state from 2011 to 2014, as well as other high-level diplomatic roles. I've watched and dealt with Vladimir Putin for more than two decades now, Byrne said at the summit. I've watched him stew in what is a very combustible mix of grievance and ambition and insecurity. He's professionally trained to be a cynic about human nature. He's relentlessly suspicious. Burns described Putin as an apostle of payback, which who operates with the goal of being in control. Newsweek reached out to the Russian Foreign Ministry for comment. Kremlin spokesperson Dmitry Peskov told reporters on Thursday that hardly anything can be done to further spoil relations between Russia and the U.S., according to Russia's task news agency. The Russian officials described ties between the nations already in a tough spot. Putin and other Moscow leaders have bizarrely claimed that Kiev is led by Nazis and bid to justify their invasion of Ukraine. In reality, Eastern European nations, President Vladimir Zelensky is Jewish and whose family members were killed in the Holocaust genocide perpetuated by the German Nazis in World War II. When Zelensky was first elected in 2019, with nearly three quarters of the vote, Ukraine's prime minister was also Jewish. 
Russian leaders have also complained about NATO expansion and Ukraine's desire to draw closer to Europe. Putin has argued that Ukraine should not be an independent nation, referencing historical ties under the Soviet Union and the Russian Empire. Ukraine has been independent since 1991 and has steadily drawn closer to the European Union and NATO despite threats from Moscow. Polling suggests that Americans largely support the U.S. effort to back Ukraine against Russia, although it has declined since the outset of the war. Critical issue poll issues poll by Brookings, carried out by Nielsen Scarborough from June 22nd to 28th, showed that significant majorities of Americans say they're unwilling, say they are willing to suffer costs in an effort to support Ukrainians. 62% of respondents said they were prepared to endure higher energy costs, and 58% said they're prepared for increased inflation due to the war. However, those numbers were lower than the 73% and 65% respectively recorded in March. The poll included 2,208 respondents and had a margin of error plus or minus 2.09%. We do have attention deficit disorder, yeah, specifically the Democrats, specifically the far left, who often aren't registered to vote and like to show up and like to throw parades and like to, um, you know, talk very big interest in social media posts and march and not register to vote and don't vote often. <laughs> so, I mean, yeah, he's not wrong about that. But no, I think we're all in it to win it with Ukraine. We're all going to keep supporting Ukraine. I don't think he's right about that part. Let's see what Nancy Pelosi says. I love that she's on this stealth journey to China, to Taiwan, rather. She's not telling any plain itinerary. She's, I'm, I'm sure it's probably about the microchips, as I've read about it before. It's about the, or I don't know about microchips, but chips about, you know, trying to make sure Taiwan doesn't become the new chip master. Probably something to do with trade on that way. Pelosi reportedly put state pushed the State Department to identify Russia as a state sponsor of terror, saying if it won't, Congress will. Insider at John Hollowanger Thursday. Pelosi is urging Blinken to designate Russia as a state sponsor of terror, Politico reported. P Pelosi warned that Congress would make it the move if the State Department doesn't, the report said. Russia had been widely accused of committing war crimes in Ukraine. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi told Secretary of State Antony Blinken in a phone call earlier this week that if the State Department doesn't designate Russia as a state sponsor of terror, Congress will. According to a political report citing two sources familiar with the conversation, the State Department and Pelosi's office did not immediately respond to questions for comment from the insider. The Secretary of State has the authority to designate countries as state sponsors of terror, a label that requires the U.S. government to impose an array of sanctions. There are currently four countries designated as such, Cuba, North Korea, Iran, and Syria. Taken together, the four main categories of sanctions result from designation under these authorities include restrictions on U.S. foreign assistance, a ban on defense exports and sales, certain controls over exports, dual-use items, and miscellaneous financial and other restrictions, per the State Department's website. Designation under the above-referenced authorities also implicates other sanction laws that penalize persons and countries engaging in certain trade with certain state sponsors. 
The Ukrainian government, including Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky, has urged the Biden administration to label Russia as a state sponsor of terror. Lawmakers on both sides of the aisle, Washington, D.C., have also expressed support for such a move. The Russian military has repeatedly attacked civilians in Ukraine, in Ukraine and thousands of civilians have been killed so far. Russian, Russia has been widely accused of war crimes. Having a problem with the screen... Moscow is already facing unprecedented sanctions that have increased, isolated its economy as a result of unprovoked invasion of Ukraine. State Department spokesperson Ed Price in April told reporters that Biden administration is taking a closer look at whether to designate Russia as a state sponsor of terror. The sanctions we have in place and would have taken are the same set same steps that would be entailed by the designation of a state sponsor of terrorism, Price said at the time. Along these lines, some legal experts argue that designating Russia a state sponsor of terror would be superfluous. Ingrid Worth, an expert on international law and foreign affairs at Vanderbilt University, a recent blog for Just Security, said Blinken should not designate Russia as a state sponsor of terrorism, adding that Congress should not seek to force his hand. Worth underscored that the U.S. has already slapped crippling sanctions on Moscow that have forced Russia to default its sovereign debt. For this reason, Worth said the sanction-related implications of the designation would would not be especially significant. Likely the most effect, the significant effect of designated Russia would be to allow litigation against it for acts of terrorism that have harmed U.S. citizens. In light of the ongoing war in Ukraine, the many people who have been harmed by it, and limited sources available to remedy those harms, such litigation is at very least premature, might never be a good way to punish Russia or to compensate victims. It may not. I'm fine with the title. I mean, sure, it may not have any, um, you know, legal impact or significant impact, but I like the heart of what Nancy's after. I think it's fine to designate them a state sponsor of terror just for that designation. I think it's appropriate. I think she should push through with that. Go for it, Nancy. So we were hearing before on this podcast and before that Putin was on death's doorstep, going to die any day, these cancerous things. CIA director dismisses reports of Putin being in ill health. Ill health. The Hill from Julia Miller, Thursday. CIA director William Burns shot down speculation of Russian President Vladimir Putin's ill health, though he said Putin has acted on some real illusions in waging war on Ukraine. The Kremlin has previously played down public conjecture about the Russian leader's mental well-being after he invaded Ukraine. There are a lot of rumors about President Putin's health, as far as we can tell. He's entirely too healthy, Burns said in a talk in the Aspen Security Forum. Moderated by the NBC News Chief Washington Correspondent Andrea Mitchell, Burns was so quickly quick to qualify his comments as not a formal intelligence judgment, added that his, despite his good health, Putin did seem to be operating under flawed assumptions. His views have hardened, but he's got his own way of looking at reality, and as we could see in the first stages of the war, it's based on some profundity, profoundly flawed assumptions and some real illusions. Unsubstantiated rumors have circulated Putin is suffering from Parkinson's disease, cancer, dementia, or that he uses body doubles to mask any weaknesses. In February, Senator Marco Rubio, Republican of Florida, tweeted that something is off Putin. Former White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki told ABC that Russian president was manufacturing threats that don't exist. Uh, Reuters reported that reported that former Prime Minister Boris Johnson called him irrational, but Russian officials have routinely denied allegations of Putin's ill health. On Thursday, a Kremlin spokesperson said everything's fine with the Russian president's health, according to Reuters. 
These are nothing but fakes, a spokesperson said of rumors about Putin's instability. Possibly. I believe Putin himself was the one declaring that he had ill health. So, I mean, who knows? Sure. Okay. He's sick on death's doorstep. No, he's fine. I'm all right. Kind of erratic like China. Any more on Russia? Now, so let's dovetail into China. Russia's strategic failure in Ukraine is likely to affect China's decision on how and when to invade Taiwan, said CIA. The Russia's strategic failure in Ukraine is likely to affect China's decision on how and when to evade Taiwan, says CIA chief. Insider, insider Cheryl Tay, uh, insider at insider.com, Cheryl Tay Wednesday. CIHF Bill Burns and China said China may be picking up some lessons from Russia's failures in Ukraine. He said the war won't likely shake China's resolve to invade Taiwan, but affects how and when. Burns said China will probably know that overwhelming force is needed in a decisive victory. Central Intelligence Agency Director William Burns said Wednesday that Russia's struggles in Ukraine would likely affect how and when China decides to invade Taiwan. Speaking to NBC at the Aspen Security Forum, Burns said the Chinese may have learned vital lessons from the war. He speculated that the Chinese have been likely have been left unsettled by the poor performance of Russian troops and Russian Vladimir Putin's strategic failure in Ukraine. Despite these concerns, see the Darth Vader's always loose. They think they're going to go in guns blazing and win. The Jedi Knights just swarm and take over. Isn't it true? That's why I'm so confident about it. That's why you hear me borderline flipping about going to World War III because I am confident because history has, you know, made me that. History has made me that in the sense of knowing history and knowing that these overconfident evil dictator lords, autocrats that want to just send in their commanders and think that they're going to win. Well, obviously, we see many don't even want to fight and don't. And then they're not very invested and then they're not very good when they do fight. So let that be a lesson to you, Xi Jinping. Which is why I'm excited to get this war started so it'll be over soon, so there'll be no more autocracies, so we can all have a new world order of nice world democracies. To what? Do trade, ethical behaviors all around, and work on climate change. Yeah, that's the point of me. Okay, on this on these war issues. He's, okay, despite these concerns, Perns warned that Chinese President Xi Jinping, determined to assert China's control over Taiwan, should not be under it. Oh, I'm sure he does want to assert it. But, you know, when he tries, it'll be World War III and they'll go down with the ship. I think the Chinese leadership is trying to study the lessons of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. I think our sense is that probably affects less the question of whether the Chinese leadership might choose some years down the road to use force to control Taiwan, but how and when they would do it. Burns added that China had likely observed that overwhelming force would be necessary to ensure quick, decisive victories in any invasion attempt. <laughs> he compared this to Russia's drawn-out conflict in Ukraine, which he said was not a sustainable political endgame. With such factors in mind, Burns says the Chinese leadership might be looking to amass overwhelming force and to shore up their economic against economy against possible international sanctions. Possible? How about definite? 
As for Z's immediate priorities, Byrne said he is likely to focus on cementing his power during the upcoming Communist Party Congress and keeping the Chinese economy aloft. However, he added the chance of a Taiwan invasion would be higher in the latter part of 2020s. The Chinese government had claimed Taiwan as a renegade province that is part of its territory, while the Taiwanese view the island as an independently ruled, self-governing state with its own military. Political figures, including former President Donald Trump, have speculated that China would be likely to attempt a military assault on Taiwan, particularly after Putin invaded Ukraine in, in February. The Taiwanese are currently attempting to shore up their defenses in preparation for a, for a potential Chinese invasion by training for urban warfare. So this is another article kind of on that tandem. Algeriza, Wednesday, Ukraine quagmire prompting China rethink on Taiwan, CIA chief. The head of the CIA has warned that China appears determined on using force in Taiwan. Of course, of course they are. With Russia experienced in Ukraine only affecting Beijing's calculations on when and how rather than, rather than if to invade. CIA Director Bill Burns said Wednesday that China probably saw in Ukraine you don't achieve quick, decisive victories with underwhelming force. China claims the self-road territory of Taiwan where nationalists established the government in 1948 after losing power to the communists in the country's civil war in part of territory and has not ruled out the use of force to take control of the island. Speaking of the Aspen Security Forum, Burns said that China was unsettled when looking at Russia's five-month-old war in Ukraine, which he characterized as a strategic failure. For President Vladimir Putin because he had hoped to topple the Kiev government within a week. Our sense is that probably affects less the question of whether Chinese leadership might choose some years down the road to use force to control Taiwan, but how and when they would do it, Byrne said. I suspect the lesson that the Chinese leadership and military are drawing is that you've got to amass overwhelming force if you're going to contemplate that in the future, he said. Just kind of comical that this is even being discussed. Okay. Uh, Biden reveals plans for a call with President Xi Jinping, the first and two leaders, first between the two leaders in four months. First call in four months. I think I'll be talking to President Xi within the next ten days. Biden told reporters. Uh, U.S. calls on China main strategic rivals is high-level engagement important to keep a difficult relationship stable and prevent it from veering inadvertently to conflict. Um. just love the dialogue. I think the military thinks it's not a good idea for Nancy to go right now, but I don't know what the status of it is. Biden. <laughs> I love this. I love that Nancy's like, I'm going. <laughs> and Biden's like, I don't know if she's going. <laughs> I'm just skimming now. Yeah, just more history about the independence of Taiwan, which we are all we all already know. Okay, so let's talk about Yeah, the Supreme Court is reigning in Biden and and, and AKA the executive branch. 
Supreme Court won't let Biden implement immigration policy, Associated Press Thursday. Washington. Supreme Court won't allow the Biden administration to implement a policy that prioritizes deportation of people in the country illegally who pose the greatest risk to public safety. The court's order Thursday leaves the policy frozen nationwide for now. The vote was five to four. That's a tight vote. With conservative Justice Amy Cohen, Amy Coney Barrett, joining the liberals, Justice Sonia Sotomayor, Elena Kagan, and Katanji Brown Jackson, saying they would have allowed Biden administration to put place the guideline, the guidance. The court also announced it would hear arguments in the case, saying they would be in late November. The court is the first public vote on by Jackson since she joined the court June 30th. The justices were acting on the administration's emergency request to the court following conflicting decisions by the Federal Appeals Court on September Directive for the Homeland Security Department that paused deportation unless individuals had committed acts of terrorism, espionage, or egregious threats to public safety. The federal appeals in courts in Cincinnati earlier the month overturned a district judge's order that put the policy on hold a lawsuit filed by Arizona, Ohio, and Montana, but in a separate lawsuit filed by Texas and Louisiana, federal judge in Texas ordered a nationwide halt to the guidance and federal appellate panel in New Orleans decided to stop, step in. The judges amounted, judge's order amounted to nationwide judicially imposing overhaul on the executive branch enforcement priorities, Solicitor General Elizabeth Perloger wrote in a court filing. Perloger is administration to the the top Supreme Court lawyer in their Supreme Court filing. Texas and Louisiana argue that the administration guidance violates federal law that requires the detention of people who are in the U.S. illegally and who have been convicted of serious crimes. The state said they would face added costs of having to detain people the federal government might allow to remain free inside the U.S. despite the criminal records. The guidance issued after Joe Biden became president updated a Trump-era policy that removed people in the country illegally, regardless of criminal history of community ties. In a statement Friday, the Department of Homeland Security said that while it awaits a final ruling by Supreme Court, Immigration and Customs Enforcement officers will make enforcement decisions on a case-by-case basis in a professional, responsible manner, informed by their experience as law enforcement officials in a way that best protects against the greatest threats to the homeland. So Biden wants to take out the most dangerous illegals and ship them out to where they came from or deport them from the country. And the Supreme Court is saying no. Okay. Hands thrown up. I mean, what powers don't the Supreme Court have lately? It seems like the Supreme Court is running everything lately. It's just some, it's mind boggling, but it's fascinating at the same time. Okay. So this is a really, okay, so you might have heard about, how do I want to, well, let's talk about Taiwan again, because I think this is the reason that Nancy's going, because we don't really know why Nancy's going to Taiwan. She hasn't said, but this is my hunch. Bloomberg, the U.S. dependence on Taiwan chips is untenable, Raimondo says. I am Marlowe, so I'm assuming it's that, Thursday. The U.S. can't keep relying on Taiwan for semiconductors and needs to pass legislation to support domestic production of high-end computer chips, Commerce Secretary Gina Romito said. 
Our dependence on Taiwan for chips is untenable and unsafe, Romano told a crowd of the annual Aspen Security Forum in Colorado. Gathering of White House officials, diplomats, and executives, she appeared via video conference from D.C. This is a Sputnik moment for America, Romano said, referring to the CHIPS Act. More than 50 billion package intended to increase the manufacturing of American-made semiconductors. I mean that very sincerely, and this is a project we're working on. Congress has been discussing legislation to, dis- to strengthen the nation's technology sector for more than a year, but the centerpiece of that plan is still up in the air. Amid House and Senate disagreements over the substance of the package, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell also said last month that no bill would go forward as long as Democrats were pursuing a $1 trillion tax measure to fund climate change spending and other measures. Bipartisan version of the bill on track for votes next week in the House Senate was estimated to increase U.S. budget deficits by 70 70- $9 billion over a decade if enacted, according to Congressional Budget Office. Speaker in the later panel of Aspen event, economist and former U.S. T- Treasury Secretary Loris, Lawrence Summers stressed that the U.S. needed to pass legislation for geopolitical reasons. He compared U.S. reliance on Taiwan to European reliance on Russian gas imports, which he gave Moscow leverage following the invasion of Ukraine. People look at Germany and they go, how could they have been so reliant on Russian natural gas? Summers asked the crowd. They're going to look at us and say, how could we have been so reliant on Taiwanese semi- semiconductors? China competition. Raimondo also discussed the Biden administration's economic strategy toward China, saying the U.S. needed to boost investment at home while also trying to reduce China's edge. She said the U.S. needed to protect American intellectual property and defend U.S. companies from unfair practices, including Chinese dumping of cheap steel and aluminum in the U.S., while also trying to level the playing field for U.S. companies to help them better access the Chinese market. There's only so much we can do to slow down China, and we need to do that, she said. We need to be clear-minded about our expert export controls, deny China technology from the U.S. that will allow them an edge, and enforce that, and we are doing that. Appearing alongside Summers on the lighter panel, Robert Zolek, a former U.S. trade representative and World Bank president, referred to Raimondo's comments and warned that U.S. policy on China has been schizophrenic as it veers between punishing China and opening up the world's second largest economy. In her words, we want to slow them down. We want to disconnect from them. While at the same time, the open markets, that's a difficult trick to pull off, he said. In a sense, we haven't decided as a country, do we really want to open markets in China or do more business? Or do we want to try to contain and isolate them, which will be very costly? So it could be that is the reason she's going over there. NATO's strategic awakening with China. The Hill. Congress is considering legislation that would provide a boost to the U.S. semiconductor industry to be more competitive with China. Notwithstanding the slimmer, broader China competition bill, this legislation is timely because it aligns with an awakening that's also reoccurring, is occurring in NATO regarding growth threat of China. Last month, for the first time in history... NATO officially identified China as a strategic priority, marking a major policy change for the alliance and increasing strategic alignment between major Western powers on the issue of competition with China. This policy shift was of the alliance's June release 
of its new strategic concept, Madrid, Spain, because the differences in geography, politics, and economic entanglements. The 30 NATO nations have distinct perspectives on the extent of China's threat. However, the strengthening Russia-China relationship has given NATO nations a fresh perspective on the shifting political, geopolitical dynamics. The announcement of China's No Limits. Friendship with Russia, joint exercises between China and Russia NATOs, China's alignment with Russia on messaging about the war in Ukraine, including blaming NATO for the aggression as well as a joint statement China released with Russia condemning NATO enlargements, have reframed the threat of that China poses to the alliance. What opportunities does NATO strategic awakening provide to harmonize competition view, competing views on the European continent regarding China? How can the alliance prevent a more unified global approach to facing competition with China? NATO can and should play a unique role in the global strategic competition with China, but to do so, it needs to achieve a common view uh, initiate a strategic decoupling of the str- critical supply chains and limit infrastructure investments and strengthen its Indo-Pacific partnerships. Releasing a NATO strategy on China, NATO's new strategic concept uses strong language to name the threats China poses to Euro-Atlantic security. The document clearly pits Beijing policies and ambitions against the alliance interests. Thank you. Security and values. Thank you, NATO. It refers to China's policies and tactics as coercive, for sure, and its hybrid and cyber operations as malicious, most definitely, and its rhetoric is confrontational, even going so far as to say China is going to join Russia in its efforts to subvert the rule-based international order, including the space, cyber, and maritime domains. Well, NATO, I appreciate your integrity to confront China on those. NATO should release a security strategy document that further provides examples on how China's activities impact security on the European continent and outlines a strategy to counter them. The alliance should focus on only those activities that most clearly impact Euro-Atlantic security interests in order to maintain a politically unified front approach to China. While emerging Russia-China partnerships of its growing concern, China is distant is distinct from Russia and plays a key economic role in both the North American and Europe. NATO should remain open to constructive engagement with China, especially in facing global security challenges as privacy and climate change. Decouple critical supply chains and limit infrastructure investment. Just as a European nation has scrambled to disentangle their supply chains from Russia, they must also take decisive steps to reduce dependencies and even decouple their most critical supply chains from China. From flash memory chips and the latest iPhones to semiconductors and Amazon servers to dominance in clean energy tech, China has multifaceted abilities to impact Euro-Atlantic security through the pervasiveness of its technology. Vulnerabilities are not limited to civilian technology and can also impact military equipment. Most recently, circuit boards for the next-generation F-35 warplane came under scrutiny after it was publicized the British manufacturer of the boards is owned by a Chinese parent company. Distangling supply chains could include working with the European Union on technology standards and policies as well as taking more deliberate efforts to build out an allied innovation base to fund homegrown tech development. There is concern about Chinese investments in European critical infrastructure, which has implications for NATO's ability to mobilize and respond to crises. Two-thirds of EU member states signed on as formal partners in China's Belt and Road Initiative, allowing Chinese investments in energy railroads, roads, and ports. In fact, 10% of European port capacity is owned by Chinese state firms. NATO can highlight the security risks of these investments and work with both EU and member nation governments to create greater screening for Chinese investments in critical infrastructure. 
strengthening NATO partnerships in the Indo-Pacific, the NATO should formalize the enhance during enduring strategic partnerships with key Indo-Pacific nations such as South Korea, Japan, Australia, and New Zealand. The inclusion of heads of state from these countries in the Madrid summit sent a strong message of enhanced regional strategic cooperation. Efforts to strengthen these partnerships should include increasing political consultations, information sharing, and interoperability efforts. These partnerships allowed for expansion, expanded regional security awareness and resilience, allowing NATO to play a role in balancing out China's increasing assertiveness. NATO's ability to publicly, under consensus, identify the systemic challenges posed by rising China opens up a countless opportunities for NATO to integrate its security activities across its global strategic partners to keep China in check. The new strategic concept holds the promise of a strategic alliance between Euro-Atlantic and Indo-Pacific nations. For the U.S., the ability to operate in diplomatic, diplomatic spaces that have shared understanding of the scope of political, economic, and technological threats posed by China will enable a common strategic view of the challenge posed by China and can serve as a foundation for collective action. NATO must seize this opportunity to make the alliance not only a counterweight to Russia's aggression, but also to strategic heavyweight for competition with China. I'm happy about this change in tune of NATO, and I appreciate it. Thank you. Let's talk about North Korea. North Korea warns of undesirable consequences as the U.S. and South Korea get ready for bigger war games. Ash Hill, Abby Hushal yesterday by Business Insider. U.S. and South Korea are preparing for expanded joint military drills, which will include live field exercises. North Korea has warned that the two countries may face an undesirable consequence. South Korea's president told reporters on Friday that North could conduct a nuclear test at any moment. As the, use, as the U.S. and South Korea prepare for expanded summertime joint military exercises, North Korea is warning that the two allies will face unprecedented security challenges and undesirable consequences if they do not stop their military confrontation. We are allies, after all. South Korea and us, both democratic nations. I love and I look forward to the day where South Korea will just take over North Korea with the World War III help. And there will be no more North Korea um, communist government as we know it. Chloe Jin, the deputy director of North Korea's Institute of Disarmament and Peace, a state-run organization operated by North Korean Foreign Ministry, told Associated Press this week that the U.S.-South Korean military drills are driving the Korean Peninsula to the brink of war. I don't know about that. Should the U.S. and allies opt for military confrontation with us, they would be faced with unprecedented instability security-wise, Jin said. I don't know that that's true either. Added that the U.S. should keep in mind it will be treated on the footing of equality when it threatens us with nukes. Well, you've threatened so many with nukes. Jin also said that U.S. should stop its suicidal policy of hostility with North Korea if it does not wish to face an undesirable coincidence. Well, we are hostile to communist countries that oppress their people, make them starve, to secure the power of Kim Jong-un and his mighty reign. Yeah, we are hostile to that. It's not a suicidal policy. We're just hostile to you and to that 100%. We're so hostile that when we're in World War III, you will be obliterated and South Korea will take over your country for the betterment of all North Koreans. Looking forward to that. Joint military drills between the U.S. and South Korea, longtime allies, are regular events. 
Yeah, exercises have been smaller in recent years. This year, the two countries will resume joint field exercises for the first time since 2018. This North Korean reaction has been so far consistent with response to past drills, which regarded as a precursor to war. The summertime military exercises have been scaled down due to COVID, attempts to curb tensions with the North, and during Trump administration presidential complaints about the cost of drills. South Korea President Yoon Suk-yeol, who will begin first term began in May, has said through these joint drills should be normalized as a deterrence against North Korea that is again engaging in provocative behavior. The U.S. and North South Korea are clearly demonstrating how close their alliance is, Bruce Bennett, a senior defense analyst at RAND Corporation, told the insider. One has to wonder if Kim Jong-un isn't realizing that this is his fault. If he hadn't done multiple missile tests this year, we would not be out showing the strength of our alliance. Exactly. North Korea has conducted 31 missile tests in 2022, including one it claims his first successful ICBM launch. And since 2017, on June 6, just 24 hours after North Korea launched eight, eight short-range missiles, the U.S. and South Korea carried out joint missile tests, and the latter's joint chiefs of staffs had demonstrated the cap- capability and posture to launch immediate precision strikes on the origins of provocations, even if North Korea launches missiles from various locations. But South Korea says more provocative testing from the North we may soon to come, including first nuke tests since September 2017. President Yoon said North Korea is ready to conduct a nuclear test at any time. We believe it's not only the end of the month, but ever since my inauguration, it's fully ready and capable to do whatever it decides, Yoon told reporters on Friday. In May, CNN reported that U.S. has assessed that North Korea could be ready to conduct another nuke test by the end of the month. Then it said it would be no surprise if North Korea can turn to a nuke test as their next major provocation. The fact that U.S. is participating in this training is going to be causing Kim all kinds of concerns, Bennett told Insider. He doesn't want to strengthen our alliance, but he's been doing a really good job of that this year. Exactly. And exactly highlights my point of why communist governments like CCP, North Korea, Russia, they don't respond to diplomacy and they don't have any common sense of equity of if you start to provoke by flexing your muscles, don't expect the allies to sit there and watch. We're going to also flex back stronger and harder. It's just, you know, the way of it. Um, so, yeah. What else? We're at 45, maybe all the international stuff. Then I can save, like, the local stuff for the next interview. That might be, or the next report. A little, a few days behind on things. Let's do another international. Israel strikes Hamas positions in Gaza Strip in response to firing from the enclave Tuesday. Israeli forces on Tuesday attacked positions of the Islamic resistance movement Hamas in the Gaza Strip in response to several shots fired shortly before the Palestinian enclave and hitting the industrial building near the border. 
Israel Defense Forces IDF reported that short before several shots hit an industrial building in the community of Nativ Hazara, though at the moment there's no information about possible casualties or injuries. Israel Air Force fighter jets have struck a Hamas military post in the northern Gaza Strip, the IDF said in a message posted on Twitter account. For its part, Palestinian sources have indicated that Israel has attacked two Hamas observation posts in the Beit Hanun area in northern Gaza Strip, as reported by Daily Hazaretz. On Saturday night, the IDF reported the launching of four missiles from the Gaza Strip, of one of which was interpreted in- intercepted by Israel's Iron Dome air defense. Yeah, they will always defend. They will always respond. Should Palestine and Hamas continue to fire, they will be fired upon. Fair enough. Yeah, the rest is all local state news and national news. So we'll just keep that kind of, yeah. And this is more international. It's almost an hour, so I'll just stop by that. So you've got caught up. Um, another way of viewing this podcast is just, just a way to keep up with the news, both local, state, international, national. Um, I, I just have a passion for it. Um, I like keeping people informed of what's going on. I like adding my two cents and my beliefs about it, too, um, which I'm pretty spot on, I think. And kind of giving a bigger picture and also just encouraging, like I say, you know, there doesn't need to be a polarized America. There doesn't need to be the strife in our country. You know, people that just are not happy here and it's not changing or evolving fast enough for them can leave. And I don't mean it in a mean way. I mean it in the way that's best for them and their families and their lives. There's no shame in becoming an expat. People do it all the time. It's better for you to leave and be happy where you are than to be toxic, especially on the left, stay here and make it harder for those like us and the centrists to get anything done in the democratic agenda. So if you think you're helping us, you think you're serving in any way, you're not. you just either cowardly or you don't want to give up your money or you don't want to give up whatever it is that's keeping you here. And that's what I challenge you to reflect on and go, life is short. If you really are about your values, then go live where your values are. If you don't want to roll up your sleeves and do the hard-ass work that's going to be needed for this country to progress it, like Joe Biden has done and is doing, no matter whether you want to recognize it or not, he has a laundry list of accomplishments, um, you know, then leave by all means. Who's keeping you here? God bless you. Go off and make wherever you're going to be a better place. Understand you may not be very well received because you're American until they talk to you and get to see your beliefs and then it may be more in line. But, you know... I would just say, don't be cowardly. Just leave. Go. You know, if you don't like it, you can come back. <laughs> you know, it's not like you can't re-enter, right? But honestly, like, be at a place that you're going to bring the best of yourself to it. Don't be just a leftist curmudgeon here, <laughs> okay? You know, eat the money and go. All right. I hope that helps. I hope, I hope it lights a fire under some people to go, really. Or if not, if you're like, no, I'm determined to stay here, then please evolve. Please evolve. Not your kind of evolution of what you think is better, but evolve to reality, which is the left needs to understand that the centrists and the left need all the left centrists we can get 
convert to us because we really do need the help. But we but you being extreme and being AOC and being the squad and being false arrests and being arrests and drama, it, it isn't helping move the needle of the democratic agenda. What you think is helping is not helping. It's, it's, it's firing up the opposition to make it harder. That isn't helping. It's self-indulgent. It's annoying. And, it's, and it, it just doesn't move anything. So just move yourself. <laughs> move yourself out. Or move yourself over to the long, solemn faces that we all have in the Central Democratic Party. We all have them. Long, solemn faces and do the hard work with us if you really love this country enough to stay here. You know, being, being a leftist kind of crackpot, it doesn't really help, right? It's fun for you. It's entertaining. You think you're helping. You feel vitalized. You're not doing, you feel like you're shaking things up. You're not doing jack crap. And half of you don't even vote. So, you know, really, if you're going to stay here, be, be all in, be all in sleeves up and get that long face and go, oh, this is going to be hard or leave and just love being a foreigner in a country that's aligned with your values. And I will be happy for you. Right? Makes sense. What I'm saying makes sense, but they don't talk about this on the news. Anyway, that's why I developed this podcast. All right, everybody have a great day.